There's three things that I want to draw attention to in the next few minutes. The first is, to change, you must have been changed. To change, you have to have already been changed. Second, to change, you must think. And third, to change, you must fight violently. So let's pray. Jesus, uh, Ryan has invited your presence and asked for it, and I will add my voice to his and ours. We need it. Our hearts need your power. Our eyes need your power. Our ears need your power. So come and teach. Come and heal. Come and shepherd. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you knew this. I didn't. But Howie Mandel never shakes hands with anybody. And uh, he's a germaphobe. He, for 10 or 20 years, has talked publicly and openly about his uh, struggle with obsessive compulsive disorder. He's a germaphobe. He doesn't shake hands unless you have like an oven mitt on or something. He won't touch other people because he's so afraid of, of uh, getting sick. And obviously, he encounters a ton of people being a celebrity. His most recent role, he's done a lot in his life, but his most recent role is America's Got Talent. He's a judge with Howard Stern and the others. And uh, there was this awkward encounter uh, a while back um, with a guy named Chris Jones, who you may have seen because he came here to UGA in August. Uh, every, why did every university in America seems to have a hypnotist come during Welcome Week? We do it too. Chris Jones is kind of a rising star. He went on America's Got Talent, and his talent was to hypnotize one of the judges and make them do something. And so he, he tells, that's what I'm going to do in the next few minutes. Are there any judges who would be willing? Well, Howie Mandel is a skeptic. He didn't believe it, and so he's like, whatever, I'll go up there, you know, do your thing. So Chris Jones uh, starts his routine. He kind of does that little put you in a trance thing, bow your head, close your eyes, and then he starts talking to him and he says, you're not a germaphobe. You're fine, you're safe. Everybody here is healthy. Nobody here is sick. There aren't any germs. You're not a germaphobe. And then he clicks him on the back or does something and how he lifts up his head and he's fine again. And then all of the judges just without really being scripted, get up and walk over to him and hold out their hands. And he shakes every single one of their hands. Now, you might be a skeptic like me and say, well, what a great little uh, act they just did. But in the days after Howie Mandel was, he was angry. He was on Good Morning America about a month uh, later. And he tells the interviewer, like, he was, he was angry at Chris Jones. He said it was really disturbing watching the video because he's a germaphobe. And to see him just kind of like rubbing hands with all these different people. And he said it sent him back to therapy. Uh, and he had kind of gotten over it that, by that point. But he said it was really annoying. He felt taken advantage of in that moment. I kid you not. You can look up the video on YouTube. Here's, here's the point with what Chris Jones did and Howie's response. When you don't know who you are anymore, you don't know how to act. When you don't know who you are, you don't know how to act. Uh, you see this also, uh, if someone is on a substance, they're drunk, they're out of their mind, they've forgotten who they are and therefore they don't know how to act anymore and they start doing crazy stuff and you say to them the next day, you didn't seem like yourself because they weren't. You don't know who you are, you don't know how to act. You know this too, probably better in social encounters. Generally, human beings like to be around people who know who they are and are comfortable in their own skin, right? Why? 
Because people who know who they are are steady. They're the same person all the time. They're not a chameleon always shifting to kind of say what the crowd or the friend group's gonna wanna hear or this week they like that band, the next week they're all about this band. Those people are hard to be in relationship with, right? Because you're like, I don't, who are you? You don't seem to know who you are. Again, the same point. If you don't know who you are, you don't know how to act. And the reason this is true is because identity, knowing who you are, uh, or, or who you think you are, is an anchor. It is an anchor for human beings. So who you are or who you think you are directly impacts how you act. Behavior flows out of identity. Behavior flows out of identity. Those days where you're down in the dumps and you feel worthless, you're telling yourself in your mind, I'm worthless, I'm an outsider, no one likes me. Don't you act in accordance with who you think you are? Don't you feel awkward in big crowds? Don't you push away people? Don't you maybe cold shoulder or retreat and tell yourself all these things? We act in accordance with who we think we are. And this is where Paul is coming from in Colossians 3. And if you haven't been here the past few weeks, um, I'd encourage you to go read Colossians 1 and 2. It's really quick. Or go listen to the podcast because he is standing on the shoulders of everything he's already said. And so if you come in mid-conversation, you've got to know that Paul's already said so much about who you are when grace changes everything. The gospel changes your identity. It changes your status, your position. And Paul is always, I mean, I've said this before, it almost gets tedious sometimes. You're like, okay, Paul, I get it. We're a new creation in Christ. Christ is in me and I'm in him. Let's move on and get practical. And Paul always keeps saying, no, 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 no. This is who you are. And he does it again in the passage tonight. Even as he's kind of off to the races with practical suggestions for change, he keeps catapulting back all the time. The new self. You've died with Christ. You've raised with Christ. This is who you are. So he's always happy to re-remind us. So that first point. To change, you must have been changed. Which means that God's powerful grace, his free grace that is given, never earned, that is delivered, never taken, that grace has to have invaded you and turned your life upside down and in a way, or a better way, turned your life back right side up. Your position has to change before your practices can change. And again, if you're coming midstream, this is the first time you've been here or something, you haven't heard the seven seven passages we've looked at before this, then you've got you've to hear me here. We've got to have a little sidebar conversation, especially if you don't know where you are with God, not a Christian. Listen, you've got to get the order right or you lose everything. You lose the gospel. You lose the goodness of it. You lose the freeness of it. And you wind up with you and your weakness, you and your track record, you and your inability to change. Listen, your position must change before your practices. If you try to change your practices to get your position to change, it doesn't work. And we often do that. Even the Christians in the room, we forget. We, do, we default back to this all the time. That I try to take up a new set of practices or behave in a different way or cut all of this sexual immorality out of my life, cut all of this lying and gossiping out of my life so that my position can change. If I stop doing this, I'll be nearer to God. 
we try to change our practices to change our position. And my friends, that appears to be good news from a distance, but the closer you get to it, the more enslaving it is. And it's horrible news. Because again, it leaves you over here with your practices all out of whack, figuring out how can I get back to God? Where is he? How do I do it? Where's the energy? Where's the power? The gospel is that God changes your position. He makes you his own. He draws you near. He doesn't just draw you near. I mean, the Bible uses that language, but he does something more. He grafts you into himself. Scripture says he, he unites you to himself. The way a branch is plugged into a tree trunk. You can't tell where the branch ends and where the trunk starts. You are one with him. Husband and wife joined together. Head and body joined together. That's your position. That has to change if you want to see your practices change in a sustainable way, in a trajectory reorienting way. Anybody can decide not to do a bad habit one or two or three or four or five or six or seven times. Anybody and everybody can do that. You can say no to some bad decision, but try to, try to see the whole trajectory of your life, the trajectory of your sexuality, of your intellectual life, of your relationships, of your work practices. Try to see the trajectory change and see how that goes. That's a little harder than a one-off, a New Year's resolution, I'm not gonna do it today. Try to see a pattern change. For that to happen, your position must change first. That's the, it's the order of the gospel. Change the order and you lose the gospel and you end up with something more akin to hell than heaven. So real quick, what has changed? What's changed? So if you're a Christian, let me describe you now. And if you're not a Christian, let me describe what Jesus said he came to make sinners. Uh, a few things. God has already chosen you. I almost, like when I was thinking about this earlier, I almost wanted to say like, close your eyes. I mean, Chip, you said it well. We're exhausted. We all are. We're spiritually exhausted. We're morally exhausted. We're physically exhausted. Close your eyes if you want and listen to who you already are. Sit back in that chair and listen to what's different because God did it, not you. You are already chosen you are already holy. You are already embraced. He has already invited you in. You're already family. Already adopted. You've already responded to Jesus' call to carry your sin and your shame to him and he has already carried it away as far as east is from west. When God looks at you, he doesn't see that sin. He can't because he's hidden it. Like Clay said last week from Psalm 32, you are blessed. And what Clay defined that as, you have the permanent pleasure and favor of God. You possess already, forever and unchangeably, the permanent pleasure and favor of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's his posture towards you now. You have already been filled with Christ. Not that you're being filled with him. Paul said you have been filled, which means the pitcher, we're not a half full, half empty kind of thing. It's overflowing. And you are in Jesus too, already. 
And then Paul says this. He says, you have died with Christ and you have been raised with him. Which means a lot of things. This week, next week, we'll talk about it. But it also means this, that you have shared in Jesus' worst and lowest experiences and Jesus has shared in your worst and lowest experiences in life and you have shared in his strongest, best, highest, most glorious moments and he has shared in your best and highest and most glorious moments. In his death, you have been united to him and in his life, in his resurrection, in his glory, you have been united to him. He and you are one already. And that never changes. Nothing will separate you from that, not the devil, not your sin, not circumstances, not emotions, not you forgetting it. It is unchangeably true of you. That's what it means that your position changes, that you have changed if you want to change. You have to have changed. We said this a lot last spring it was the whole butterfly caterpillar thing. You're not a caterpillar anymore if you've gone through this metamorphosis. If grace has changed you and brought you out of that cocoon, you get to fly now. You're a different creature. You have had a status change, a position change, an identity change, and therefore you can respond now to the call to flap wings and to fly and to take to the skies. Tracking with me? To change, you have to had already changed. And so if you want to change and you haven't had that change yet, that's your first stop, is to run to this one who gives grace to resurrect dead people. The second point we said we talk about is to change. It's not just that you must have already changed, but you must think, and you must think hard. Not think, 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 think to try to make something pop into existence, right? Like some mind game, mm, boom. But to think on what's all, what I just told you. And can we be honest, doesn't it take a lot of thought? Doesn't it take proactive thought? Doesn't it almost take planning and strategizing? Paul says you must set your mind on these things. Seek these things, he says, that are in heaven. Set your mind on the things of heaven. He's using flowery language for really just saying set your mind on what is true of you in Jesus now. Obsess yourself with that. Fill your thoughts with that. And he, ironically, or significantly, he doesn't say set your heart or set your feelings. He says set your mind. And I think, I don't know if this is fully true, but the older I've gotten, the more it, it resonates with experience. My emotions are hard to order around. But my thoughts are a little bit more easy to order around and tell them what to do. Still very hard. They're still slippery. I still forget stuff. I still have thoughts ambush me, catch me off guard. And I'm like, where did this thing come from? Or I'll never even ask the question. I'll just do it. I'll believe it. I'll fall into it without ever asking, why are you in my head? But you try to change your emotions. Feel happy. Feel somber and serious. Try to do that. But can you think about something if I share an idea with you? Yeah, you can do that. So Paul says, set your mind. The part of you that you can order around a little bit more and direct, set that 
on these realities. And he's saying, in a sense, tell your mind where to go. Issue instructions to it. Issue it commands to your thoughts. Because you have more control over your thoughts than you think you do, and I totally get it. None of us think we can control what we're thinking. I've learned this through dark, dark days of various struggles. Some of them were not like mental things. They were just hard seasons of life. They were seasons filled with doubt or skepticism. Some of them were seasons of just panic and fear and darkness. Uh, One that I've shared with you before is um, my years in Philly during seminary. And this was a giant transition point for my life when I didn't know anything about my future, all the big stuff. And so I wasn't deciding like, which school do I go to? I was like, am I cut out for this calling? Do I even have what this takes? Because I sure don't feel like it most of the time. Uh, I was dealing with my own emotional ups and downs. Anna and I were long distance dating and, and discerning that. Like, am I called to marriage or am I called to be single? What's God's will for me? I don't know. And it had me all tied up in knots because I felt like the weight of my life was just dangling out into nothing. And it was up to me to figure out. And so I had the unfortunate experience of having a counselor that I was going to refer me to a psychiatrist. And that's not necessarily what you want to hear from your counselor. Because you're like, I thought you're the professional I was supposed to come to and now you're saying I'm out of your league? And I've got to go to see someone else now. And that was a really scary moment because I I left that thinking, I've lost my mind. I've lost my mind. These thoughts that keep ambushing me, these anxieties that jump me in the alley, as it were, night and day. I'd go to bed every night physically exhausted. And the weird thing is, all I did with my body is sit in a chair in class but just dead tired at the end of every day from what was going on inside my mind. And here's what I learned in that time, if I can share a moment of weakness that I performed very messily and very poorly in, but the Lord sustained me in it. The days that I just shut up and let my thoughts do all the talking were days that I felt like I walked straight off the cliff. I was like a lemming. What, what, what thought? Okay, let me follow you. Boom, I crash. The days where I actually had the, great, the, the grace of God enabled me to remember, wait a minute, I'm an actor in this scenario. I'm in the driver's seat, not tied up in the trunk. And I, I started throwing punches back against thoughts. And I started questioning, why are you in my head? Who have you come from? Who sent you? Who says what you say is true? Yes, I feel it in my bones, what you're saying is true, but that's not what God says. And it was a weak, ugly, messy fight, maybe one victory and 30 losses. But those were the days that I felt like I was saved from falling off the precipice. And what that sounded like is me in those moments wrestling with my own mind saying, no, Jesus does see me. He says he won't abandon me. I feel so abandoned. I feel so alone. I feel so crushed by these circumstances. But he said he wouldn't leave me. And I have no idea what the future is going to bring, but I know he's going to be a part of the future because he says I'm united to him. That's all I could get out. Or some days, Lord, help. That's all I could get out. But that was, a, that was him giving me the mercy to direct my thoughts. Dave Ramsey says, you can tell your money where to go or you can wonder where your money went. 
And I think that's true about our thoughts too. Not perfectly. I know some of you struggle with issues where you listen to me and you're like, this is impossible. But more or less, you can tell your thinking where to go or you can wonder where it went. You can tell your thoughts where to go or you can wonder where they went. And Paul says where you should tell your thoughts, where you should park your brain, your mind, your ears, is who you are in Jesus, who you are in this grand drama of God breaking in and saying, I get last word, not sin, not guilt, not shame, not brokenness, but I do. And so the question for you is this, what do you do with your thinking? Are you the passive passenger in your own story? Or do you realize that by God's grace, you are alive and resurrected even if you feel dead, even if you feel tired, even if you feel weak and limp, and you're in the driver's seat, and he has filled your car with his very presence, and you get to get in there and and, and start throwing punches and making decisions. Are you training your mind the way an athlete trains their body? Are you becoming a specialist in these things, an expert where these things become second nature? It's not even a question anymore. It just flows out of you almost at an instinctual level. This might be news to some of us. You might have grown up in a church or a tradition where you're like thinking was bad. You're just supposed to feel, feel, feel. N.T. Wright, a very prominent scholar and theologian, says, contrary to what a lot of people think today, being a Christian means learning to think harder not to leave your brain behind in the quest for always new experiences. Have you misheard God and misheard Paul and you you mistakenly heard them say, set yourself for new experiences, a new worship service where you're singing whatever song it is and the lights are off and you're in it. God has never called you to more experiences. He has called you to set your mind on what he has told you of who you already are or who he will make you. I think one reason that we, I, and you so easily fall into temptation is that we we are blindly led along by our thoughts and temptations. We allow them to burglarize our brain, get in there without being invited, but then once they're there, we're kind of like, hey, you want a cup of coffee? Intruder, who's not supposed to be here and is stealing my stuff and vandalizing my house and my life, but hey, pull up a chair. And we just let it stay there and it wreaks havoc and then we're like, what happened? Well, I think, I wonder if, I wonder if we spent more time thinking about our minds. We'd, have, we'd, we'd get to spend less time thinking about what we're doing with our mouths and gossiping or what, are, what we're doing with our hands and our feet and sexual immorality, what we're doing with whatever else. I wonder if we put more thought into thought that we would get to put a little less energy and thought into all of the downstream things that are happening 10 miles after maybe where we should have cut things off or shut things down. C.S. Lewis, um, just he, screw tape letters is brilliant. He nails this. The demons are talking to each other about how to tempt the clients or us. And they say to each other, it's funny how mortals always picture us demons as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done in keeping things out of their mind. Temptation 
doesn't so much put things into your mind as it, ta- as it obscures things in your mind, as it veils things, as it edits things out of your mind. That's how temptation operates. Not so much by planting some seeds in your, in your mind, but by keeping things out of your mind. And you might say, Ben, I disagree because I know what it's like at 10 a.m. to have the seed of looking at porn pop into my head or the seed of not going to that small group because I'm depressed and I don't want to be around people and I know I need it, but I don't want to go. The seed was there. I felt that. And you're telling me, you're telling me that it's what's kept out of my mind, not what, not what seeds are put into my mind. And I'm saying, yeah, I, th- I agree with Lewis. Because what is being veiled in that moment is that you are alive. You are resurrected, which means that Jesus is trouncing around all the places of death in your life. And he's touching thing after thing. And he's saying, springtime, springtime, springtime. Life, rise up. And you have to forget that to be able to believe the seeds of temptation, right? You have to forget that your sexuality now is to be a life giver to the world, a life giver to one man, a life giver to one woman. You have to, you have to be blind to that to be able to go around and use men and women for their bodies and spit them out. Do you maybe agree with Lewis a little bit more that it's more, temptation is more what's kept out of your brain than what's put in it? Well, uh, the last point on that, and we'll finish up. These are all plural pronouns. When Paul says, you put sin to death, he's not saying you or you or you. He's saying, y'all put sin to death. Which means that we need each other. You need Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings and Thursday nights and lunchtime conversations and texts from friends to simply be reminded of what's already true, what God has already done. You need people to put things back in your head because they fall out. The last point is that a key part of, uh, or sorry, if we want to change, we have to fight and fight violently. And Paul says that there's no pacifists in the Christian life. Christianity doesn't make you a pacifist or a soft person. It makes you a violent person in this way. Paul says, set your, aim, your tar, aim your gun, aim your violence at two places. First, your inner deep desires that are earthly, things that wage war against you. He calls these deep inner desires, these earthly desires, these residues of the old you, sexual immorality, impurity, this passion in overdrive, ambition, evil desire, covetousness, and idolatry. He's saying those are the self-serving attitudes of a heart. Those are the feelings of a heart that produce outward actions, outward behaviors, and these things. And Paul is saying that is a bullseye that we must aim our fire at and also the behaviors and actions that flow out of those things which he calls anger and wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. And he calls them, he calls us to put them off and the attitudes that produce them. Execute them, murder them, strangle them, take them out. Two quick examples just to bring this down to earth. Slander is one of the things he mentions. The outward behavior. Slander is the outward manifestation 
that we're called to kill and to put off. It doesn't fit you now. New creations don't use their tongues to murder people through their words. They use their tongues to edify and encourage and discern and speak truth. This slander flows up from a heart that orbits around itself, and it goes like this. I can't possibly tolerate a competitor. That girl or that guy that's in my small group or that's in my class can't get the attention. I've got to cut him down. I've got to whisper, she's not as great as you think she is. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? That's an attitude of heart that's narcissistic, so focused on me. And the manifestation, the behavior that flows out of it is gossip, is slander. He talks about malice and anger and obscenity and I read this and I'm like, wow. Lord have mercy. This is a, this is a big one for me. Especially anger. It's the outward behavior we're called to kill and Paul says it flows out of a heart that loves and has to have power and control. And when, an, when, a, when a heart that loves control, that has an attitude of just affection and desire and love for control, falls out of control and you lose control, you lay the hammer down and you curse and you use physical force to get your way. Outward behavior always comes from an inner attitude of the heart. And Paul is saying, you can't prune you have to use Roundup. Because Roundup, you spray it on the outward stuff and it goes down to the root and kills the whole plant. If you prune, all that stuff's coming back twice as strong. He says we have to look at the root, not just the fruit. And the way that looks like to, to attack the root of these things for the slanderer is Jesus amazingly has shown attention to me. I was grotesque in my condition when he found me. I was repulsive to a holy God who is clean and loves love. And I was everything opposite of that. And he showed attention to me. And he used his words to exalt me and honor me and bless me. I'm full. I'm loved. I'm welcomed. I, I don't use my tongue to push people away and curse them and judge them. That's how these root issues become fruit issues, both for worse and for better. Real quick, why must we fight to begin with? You might be asking that question. Ben, did you forget to talk about that? Why even fight to begin with? I thought I was different. You just spent 10 minutes at the front saying, I'm different, I'm new, I'm resurrected. Why fight? Why do we have to? Why invest energy and effort in this? Well, we fight because of what sin is and we fight because of who we are. You know Neville Chamberlain? I know you do. Any of the rest of y'all know that name? He is infamous. He was an old prime minister of England in 19, late 1930s, and he was one of the most naive human beings ever to live because Neville Chamberlain thought the way to contain Hitler was to appease him, was to keep him happy so that he wouldn't raise a stink. He thought Hitler was the kind of enemy you could make peace with and kind of compartmentalize and build a fence around and he'll do his thing and I'll do my thing. This is what he said. This is a speech Neville Chamberlain gave before the British people. This morning I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler, or Herr Hitler. And here is the paper that bears his name upon it as well as mine. He's bragging. I would just like to remind you of what's on this paper, he says. 
We regard the agreement signed last night in the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. 1938. Hitler is the happiest man alive that night as he goes to bed because now he has all of Europe. And he invades all of Europe. And he starts trying to invade England. Chamberlain didn't understand who he was fighting. And he didn't really understand who England was. And so he tried to make peace. He toyed around with someone you can't toy around with. He played games with a murderer. Churchill is quite different. Churchill, who followed Chamberlain, knew what kind of enemy he was dealing with, and he knew his country, and he loved his country. And he knew that Hitler is not just some static force that's going to stay put. He is a dynamic, viral, metastic force that moves out and conquers and destroys. And so this is what Churchill said. Churchill says to the British people, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be, We will fight on the beaches. We will fight on the landing grounds. We will fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills and we shall never surrender. That sounds like a Christian who knows who she is, who knows who she's becoming and is willing to fight tooth and nail to defend it. And she knows who her enemy is. And she knows there is no peace treaty with gossip. There is no peace treaty with me thinking the thoughts I think when I look in the mirror. There is no peace treaty with using my girlfriend the ways I use her, saying I love her. No, I don't. I love what she does for me. There is no peace. I will fight. I will fight. That is what Paul says extinguishes and obliterates these things. And he says put it to death. He's saying if you're a house, then sin is a roach, squash it. He's saying if you're a battery, sin is corrosion. It'll eat through the cables if you let it remain there. Wash it off. He says if you're a body, sin is a viral infection overtaking you. Get it out. Rid yourself of it. I want to end tonight by saying next week, Paul is going to give us the sequel of what we're to put on what he calls us to positively, not what he calls us to kill and put off, but what he calls us into, our destiny. But I want to end by talking about stretchy pants. You heard me right, stretchy pants. So uh, I'm 37, we drive a minivan, and I'm not wearing jeans tonight, but uh, you might not have known that all my pants now are stretchy pants. They're jeans. I don't know if yours are, but I love them. Because when you sit down, they move with you. They don't constrict, they don't, they're not, restrictive. They let you move where you want to move. They let you do things without feeling pain. If you're wearing a tight pair of pants right now, you know what I'm feeling. You're like, "Er, let me. Stretchy pants are the greatest thing in the world because they fit who you are and they grow with you as you grow. (laughs) And here's a taste of next week. Paul is saying the things that he's calling us to put on next week The Christian life is not just say no to this, say no to this, don't do that. It's say yes to love. Say yes to kindness. Put on compassion. Put on truth-telling. Put on fighting for the oppressed. Put on being courageous. 
And he's saying these aren't just things that are like a, a tight pair of non-stretchy pants that are the worst. He's saying these things have elastic. They move with you. They're dynamic. They grow. He says you're being renewed every day. You are growing. You are becoming more and more you, more and more Jesus every day. What you're called to put on that we'll talk about next week will grow with you. It'll keep in pace with you as you keep in pace with the Spirit and with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your grace is not just a rescuing and saving grace, but your grace is a resurrecting grace that goes through every area of our life and our week and our month and our year, and it touches things that are dead, and it brings them back to life. And we thank you for that. We pray that for those here who need to be reminded, who need new things in our brain, that you would push them deep. We pray for those who have not ever heard these things or had them in their brain, that you, by your spirit, would soften their hearts and open their ears, that they might see you as a good God who has come to save, not to condemn. We ask this in your name, amen.